mark. And the, there's a pattern to each of the passages in these five weeks. Um, the pattern is effectively in the context of Jesus's regular and continuing ministry as he goes around from place to place and teaches, uh, he falls into controversy with the religious leaders of the Jewish community. In each one of them, you'll find the religious leaders of the Jewish community asking a question and Jesus answering. And so last week, uh, we looked at a passage where Jesus was teaching in a packed audience house, crammed all the way out the doorway, even the doorway itself was blocked by people pressing in to hear Jesus preach. And four men brought their paralyzed friend and tore open the roof of the building and lowered him before Jesus uh, to be healed. And Jesus looks at the man laying there paralyzed and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. So there the religious leaders grumble themselves and say, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? That was the context. That was the question. That was um, the provocation uh, in Jesus's ministry. As we look this morning, we will find a similar thing. And so we've been focusing on um, uh, here as kind of a title for our series, Jesus Against Religion. And I want to clarify again, even though we are, um, at least by vocabulary, relatively anti-religious. And this is, this is true outside the church that can be anti-religion and oftentimes in Christian communities too. Sometimes we like to stress that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Depending on how we define that term, that's helpful or not helpful. So for example, James tells us that true and perfect religion is to take care of or to visit or to deliver orphans and widows. And so we got to be careful here and recognize that if we're talking about religion as a construct of beliefs that we hold to be true and live our lives by, that's a neutral term. If we take it in the James sense of, of a practice that is authentically expressing who God is, then that's a good term. But we all are familiar with the um, religiosity. We're familiar with this component, not just of organized religions, but of the human heart that is swift to draw lines, that is quick to self-justify, that excludes and pushes away, and we do very clearly see Jesus standing against that during this series. And so last week we saw that whereas religion condemns, Jesus forgives, and this morning we will look at where uh, religion excludes Jesus includes. And so let's read the passage together this morning and then we'll pray. We're picking up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, I am unwilling to settle for my impulse this morning that places this religiosity as a criticism on the shoulders of others. I'm reluctant, Lord, to identify the honest truth that there are still places where these things reign in my own heart, but they did not exist in Jesus. And Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but from our self-saving religion. And so I pray, Lord, that you would align us with your character this morning without falling into any of the uh, pitfalls that are possible here, Lord, that we would be able to follow in your footsteps that we would receive the invitation that you offer and that we would rightly and freely convey it to all as you did yourself. We pray this in your name, amen, amen. 
It's a simple story this morning, maybe even more simple than the passage we looked at last week. It really comes in two parts. But I want you to notice, and I want to emphasize again, that we see here that the context is Jesus' ongoing teaching ministry. At the very end of chapter, uh, uh, or sorry, in the very middle of chapter one, Jesus had spent all day um, teaching and doing miracles and healing, and it went all the way into the night as people more and more were brought to him in the household of Peter. And then he went out early and got away to pray. And the disciples came looking for him and they said, Jesus, don't you know everybody is looking for you? Let me be clear on why. Everybody is looking for him because there's more needs. There's more healing to be done. There's more people experiencing demonic possession that need to be exercised. Uh, these are the needs. And Jesus says, no, we need to go on to the next town and preach the kingdom of God there also, for this is the reason that I have come. And so Mark is careful to emphasize over and over again that the instances that we read about are in the context of this broader reality that Jesus has come with a message. And the message is about the kingdom of God, and specifically it is about the coming of the king of God, which is Jesus himself. Now also, back in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus called some disciples, specifically two pairs of brothers, Peter and John, uh, or excuse me, James and John and Peter and Andrew, these four brothers, all who were fishermen. And it was striking because Jesus just walks up to them in the middle of their fishing shift and says, follow me, and they just walk away from their jobs and they continue on with Jesus. And they will be part of his daily life and in his intimate circle for the next three years. And then eventually, it's these men who are sent out as representatives of Jesus to continue his work and to carry the message of what he's accomplished on the cross to the ends of the earth, right? We see another call this morning, the last one that Mark records by name. And so later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will spend some time in prayer and he will officialize the calling of 12 men as his disciples or as the apostles. But these initial calls, although we can imagine them for uh, the other members of Jesus' group, these initial calls, the only ones that are named in Mark's Gospel is the four brothers in chapter 1 and then finally here with Levi. But it's important to notice the difference between the calls of, of the fishermen and the call here of Levi. And so read again with me in verse 13. He went, uh, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And so just like we saw in chapter one here, Levi is right in the middle of his job, and is given the same simple commandment that Peter and John and James and Andrew were given to follow me. Just like those four brothers, Levi also leaves everything behind and follows. But here's the difference. Okay, for, for Jesus to call his first disciples uh, out of the ranks of fishermen, blue-collar workers, uneducated Galileans, is striking in many ways. They were nobodies, okay? But it's different with Levi. Levi is not a nobody. He's notorious. Okay? He's a tax collector. Now, whatever you may feel about the IRS in the modern world, we need to remind ourselves, we need to educate ourselves on what this looked like in the Roman Empire. You see, Israel at this time is living under occupation by the empire of Rome. That's why there's so many centurions strewn about the stories of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And Rome had a very smart way of collecting taxes from the countries they occupied. They left it to people who resided in those nations, to nationals, okay? Uh, and they set it up as a contract that went to the highest bidder. In other words, you had to come to the government and say, if you make me a collector of taxes, I will bring in this much money. And another man will come in, oh yeah, well, I will bring in this much money, okay? So not only that, but how was a tax collector paid? Not on some sort of payroll or salary, but anything beyond that guaranteed number that they took, they would keep for themselves, okay? In other words, by definition, this job was built on extortion. 
Okay? The way you became wealthy as a tax collector was by asking for more than you had committed to the government uh, and taking it all to yourself. Not only that, but remember that these, uh, these tax collectors are working for the Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, they were so hated by the Jewish community, some of the writings of the rabbis tell us that a tax collector's testimony is not admissible in a court of law. Uh, that they were not allowed to enter into the synagogue, the normal place of Jewish worship, uh, and that it was completely out of bounds to fellowship with them, uh, including eating, okay, which will become pertinent to the story in just a minute. These folks were despised and excluded from their culture, and to be fair, we understand why, right? They were seen as, uh, as betrayers of their own countrymen who were living off of the hard work of their own countrymen at, at exorbitant and even extortionate uh, levels. So it's pretty striking here. It's striking, like I said, when Jesus calls uh, these fishermen who are uneducated to come and be his representatives. But when he calls Levi, even Peter and John are going, him? Really? Right? It's, it's a surprising move. It's also worth pointing out to Levi's credit that when James and John leave their father's fishing business, they leave it for now. Right? They can always go back to the family business. Not so with Levi. When he walks away from his tax collecting booth, he puts all of this behind him. He, there is no going back. He forsakes this entirely. Okay? In a similar way, you may remember the story of Zacchaeus, another tax collector we encounter. In fact, Zacchaeus is labeled as one of the higher officials in tax collecting. So he's upper management of this whole operation and probably getting a cut of all of his underlings. And when Jesus is passing through Zacchaeus' town, because Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? He's short, so he climbs into a tree to see Jesus. And even though he's up a tree and the crowds are pressing in, Jesus stops in the middle of the road, looks him right in the eye, and he says, I'm having lunch at your house today, Zacchaeus. Come down. And by the time Jesus leaves, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, anything I have taken from others, I give back fourfold. Right? It changes Zacchaeus' life. But what was it like for Zacchaeus' neighbors? All of these people who have never set foot in Zacchaeus' house, who wouldn't let him to the front of the line even though he's short, and pushed him to the back so he had to climb a tree, who had uh, you know, experienced the tightening of their own belts because of these practices. And Jesus, who they're all crowding around to see, points to him and says, I want to eat with you. I want to have lunch with you. See, it's striking. And it doesn't end there because what happens next is effectively uh, that here, Levi, who, side note, we know as Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Levi here uh, decides to throw a party and invites all his friends. But as is often the case, those who are excluded, excluded from community, what is their community? The rest of the excluded. And so look at the guest list for this party in verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so he has a party. He invites all of his friends. And what's really interesting about this is the language that is used. Notice the party happens at Levi's house as he reclined at a table in his house that's Levi, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay. Now, the, the word there for reclining has to do with the Eastern practice of eating, which isn't around a dining room table and with chairs, but reclining around a low table on pillows. Okay. And so that's the idea here. But what's interesting is they put, uh, our author here, Mark, puts Jesus in our language at the head of the table. When it says that they were reclining with Jesus, that means it was at Levi's house, but Jesus was operating as host. Okay. 
It means here that he was the one at the head of the table, and it was at his invitation, at least from Mark's perspective, that all of these people were here. And notice it's not just the tax collectors, but the sinners. Now, most often, the word sinner in the New Testament functions as a form of technical language. What I mean is consistently it's people who have sinned, right? In fact, uh, Paul goes on in Romans to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? And so mostly, sinner means two things. It means a person who needs forgiveness because they've broken God's law, and therefore, it means everybody. Okay? That's not how the word is being used here. The language of sinner here, uh, is, Mark is borrowing from what is uh, said by the Pharisees when they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay. He's borrowing that language, and they use it here not in the technical sense or in the biblical sense or even in the uh, Jewish sense broadly, but as a derogatory label. Okay. Here's what you need to understand. Last week, Jesus encountered the scribes, the ones who were committed to the imparting of what the Old Testament law taught and the interpretation of that law for specific circumstances. This week, the controversy involves the Pharisees. Okay? Now, the Pharisees weren't just committed to imparting or interpreting the law, but to keeping it to the very letter. They had devoted themselves to keep, by their count, all 613 commandments of the Old Testament as they were interpreted by their Jewish teachers and rabbis throughout history. And so it wasn't just the laws that we read here, but the specific application of those laws laid out by the interpreters, by the rabbis. So for example, uh, the Old Testament says not to bear any burden on the Sabbath. But by the time we get to the Pharisees, that's been extensively defined, okay? And so if you, and this is real, I'm drawing this right from the Mishnah, if you have a, a wooden leg, you take it off on the Sabbath so that you don't bear a burden, okay? Uh, they would carry in their pocket a piece of string of a specific length because there was a certain distance you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath. And so on Sabbath days, they would tie it to their doorpost and would, you know, like, uh, like uh, what's-his-name going through the labyrinth in Greek mythology, roll it out, and when they got to the end of it, couldn't travel any further, okay? They were rigid in their rule-keeping. Now, what about their name, Pharisee? Where does that come from? It comes uh, from an Aramaic word which means separate. Okay. And so we need to understand here that they weren't just personally committed to these things, they saw themselves as different than other people. They were the separate ones. They kept themselves separate from those that were not like themselves. And the way that they used the word sinner was for anyone who wasn't devoted to keeping the law like them. Okay. So what's interesting here is this party this guest list then is made up of those who are excluded okay and it's easy it's easy to celebrate the reality that jesus was inclusive but you need to keep in mind here that both of these groups are present in fact in, in other descriptions it says not only did jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors but it adds and prostitutes okay uh, and so it's all over the map. And what we need to understand this morning, if we're going to understand what's going on here, is that whatever culture you're in, whether it's our modern culture, whether it's a subculture in, in, uh, in America, uh, whether it's the Jewish culture, uh, Jesus is eating with people on the outside of that. Okay? Like, for us, especially in Seattle, where we feel ourselves to be relatively progressive, Jesus eating with uh, those who uh, operate in, in the sex trade, for example, uh, or those who are despised uh, like the woman in Samaria because she uh, is racially out of the bounds of Jerusalem, just a Samaritan, or when he breaks the cultural constructs of how he treats women or all these things, it's easy for us to applaud that. But what would be the modern equivalent of Levi? A slumlord? Right? A bloated pork barrel legislation politician from the other party? 
You see, every culture takes the broad category that we call sin and then defines what sins are tolerable or explains them away and what sins are unforgivable and holds those. What's striking here is even in this short passage, we find Jesus making everyone uncomfortable, not just the stuck-up, stuffy, religious folks. When it says here that he ate with uh, tax collectors and sinners, we could define that as being outsiders. And before we get to application this morning, before we really talk to ourselves, take a moment and just think to yourself who that is for you. Whose house would you not be caught dead in? What people are so far beyond the pale that like these self-same Pharisees in one of Jesus' stories, if they saw them dying on the side of the road, would cross the road and, and walk on the other side? What are the people that are too far gone or too far different or distant or too different from yourself uh, that you would avoid them? That's what this story is about. That's what's going on here with Jesus. This continues throughout the church's history. For example, a little bit later on in the book of Acts, a man by the name of Saul, who hates Jesus and hates the church, has gotten permission from the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, to carry his persecution of Christianity beyond his hometown all the way to Damascus. And so he's got the title in hand to throw Christians in prison. We know from a chapter before he's on his road to Damascus that he was at the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, standing there and holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And as he's going along, it says, still breathing threats against the church. Every time I read that, I think of Yosemite Sam, right? It's just, he's just so angry all the time. He's alone and on the road, and he's just like, I'm going to get those Christians. I'm going to just take care of this. You know, that's, he is consumed with his hatred for Christians. And suddenly he encounters the risen Lord Jesus on that road who knocks him to the ground, who strikes him blind and speaks out of heaven. And he realizes, holy cow, do I have something wrong here? And those who are traveling with him take him to a house on a particular road in Damascus and leave him there blind in the dark and alone. And God speaks to a Christian by the name of Ananias who lives in Damascus and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to this particular house in this particular strait. Saul of Tarsus is there and I want you to go see him. And he goes, him? Saul? The one who's thrown people I know by name in prison? And Jesus says, I have called him. I have work for him to do. Go. Another occasion... The Apostle Peter, who probably had this same sense towards Levi, because remember, effectively, taxes in the ancient world involved customs, and so it's very possible, actually, that the taxes that the fishermen paid at the Sea of Galilee on their fish, which, by the way, we have records of, just a side note, uh, may have gone right through Levi in Capernaum, which was the, uh, the border territory between two of the Tetrarch territories that made up the Roman Empire in Israel, okay? Uh, can you imagine Peter sitting there and going, Levi? But later, Peter is praying on a house, waiting for lunch, and he sees this vision of a, of a, cur or of a, a tablecloth descending with animals on it, some clean, some kosher, and many unclean, things that you wouldn't eat, things that Anthony Bourdain wouldn't eat, okay, are on this. And he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that was unclean. He says, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. And at that moment, some servants of a Roman centurion show up at his house, knock on his door and said, our masters had a vision. We're supposed to come looking for Peter. Please come to our master's house. And now suddenly it all makes sense. And Peter goes, oh, this isn't about food. This is about Gentiles. 
See, Peter, like all the Jews of his day and age, drew the line at where they eat around a national border. They did not eat with people of other nations. Uh, And here he's being called to enter into the house. And he's so on the fence about this. This is how he begins his evangelistic message. He says, now I would not be here today because I'm a good Jew if God hadn't told me to come here. Okay, that really warms up his audience, doesn't it? It's like, I don't want to be here. I just want you to know that. But God shows up in Peter's message. Cornelius and his entire household and all of his friends and relatives that he's invited. uh, The spirit falls upon them. They begin to speak in tongues, just like happened on the day of Acts. And then Peter has to defend that he was in this household talking to these people before the leaders of the Christian church. Or consider when Paul goes to Corinth. Now Paul, he is a trophy of grace. He carries that message fully and freely. But there's something about his ministry in Corinth that gets so rough, he's about ready to pack his bags. And if you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you discover uh, he may have had good reason to do so. Because the city of Corinth was wholly given over to sexuality. In fact, just by way of illustration, okay, we did a dig, uh, not we personally, but we as modern human beings, did a dig in Corinth uh, this last century, and we found a temple that was full of clay body parts, okay, arms and feet, uh, and a whole lot of genitalia, okay? And we didn't really know why, and the running theory now is that these body parts were personifications of problems that people had. That they, in, this, in a form of worship and, and request, formed these things asking for healing on these particular parts of the bodies. But clearly then, venereal disease was running rampant in Corinth. Okay? Things get so bad that Jesus himself appears to Paul and says, stay put, don't leave because I have many people in this city. And let me remind you, it wasn't all flowers from them. Even after Paul sees an amazing work of God in people becoming Christians, it's a messy story, right? They become Christians, but they're almost Corinthians first, and they bring all of that baggage into the church. But even there, Paul was in a place where he said, I don't know, maybe this city is just too far gone. Maybe there's nothing that can be done here. You see, this isn't just a happening of Jesus, it's a habit. It's a character of Christianity. Okay. Now, The question they ask, the Pharisees, I want you to notice first off that when they saw, verse 16, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, okay? So last story, we saw the scribes and they say to themselves, they don't speak up. Here, the Pharisees don't come to Jesus and challenge him. They complain about Jesus to his closest constituents, Why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors? We will see this escalate every time, ramping up. Uh, But here, it's just an aside. In verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them. Okay, and so Jesus responds to this. And notice what he says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, notice Jesus also employs this language, both the implied language of how the Pharisees are seeing themselves. If they are sinners, we are righteous. And also the words that they use of sinners. Okay? He does, however, use it in a different way. He doesn't use it in a way um, that is merely distancing, dehumanizing, derogatory. He doesn't just take it as exclusion language, like the word untouchables, for example. He actually says there's something about their condition that validates, in fact, necessitates me being with them. He uses a medical metaphor. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Okay. I think the idea here is, is pretty easy to make. Like, if you're a doctor and you're a germaphobe, you're probably in the wrong career, right? Or a doctor who says, I only work with healthy people. It doesn't make any sense, does it? 
the whole idea of being a physician, of being a doctor, is that there are people who need a doctor, and so you go where the need is. And so Jesus says, it is absolutely appropriate that I be where the need is with these people. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, here's the thing. That religiosity that I mentioned that I honestly believe lives in all human hearts. That it's not something that merely those who have grown up in religion and been indoctrinated or uh, are drawn to, uh, that the least religious people deal with this religiosity. Uh, the way that we generally go about fellowship, which means who we spend time with, who we love, who we invest in, who we care about, who we believe in, all of these things, uh, is, is boundary-oriented. Okay. We draw a line. And like I said, you may find yourself to be terribly inclusive because you include this group that is excluded by that other group, but will you just ask yourself this morning if there's an excluded group? Instead of comparatively saying, I include the excluded, who do you exclude? Who would you keep your distance from? Who would be an unqualified no on the invitation? Some people like to point out that when we get to Jesus, what we see is not a boundary set religion. Okay. Here are the definitions on the outside of the boundaries. Here are the rules and the walls. You just need to stay on the inside. Okay. But a center set religion. Here is Jesus at the center that we're seeking to follow. Okay. One metaphor that I think is helpful for this opinion uh, is contrasting the difference between walls and wells. Right? Walls keep people out. Wells we all come to and drink from. And I think that's really valuable. However, we need to recognize that Jesus is fully acquainted with and believes in at least part of what we mean when we say walls. You need to remember that the same Jesus who eats with sinners and tax collectors, when the young and rich ruler comes to him and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus draws a line in the sand and he says, you are on the outside. Even to, uh, even to uh, another man who comes to him uh, and speaks and he says, I know that the law is summed up in love the Lord your heart, uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor yourself. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not in. Okay. And so the idea here is not that Jesus doesn't deal with need and therefore equalizes everybody as fine. In fact, here's, I think, the best way to understand what Jesus' ministry is about. How does he define himself in the Gospel of John? He says, I am the door. I am the gate. The idea here is not that there are no boundaries or no walls. The idea is that there is a free and open invitation to come inside. In fact, what's striking here is for Jesus at the table, there is no prerequisite for being with Jesus. You don't have to fix this first. You don't have to clean this up first. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian first. Notice it says, verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is a mixed group. In other words, he doesn't just leave an invitation and say, hey, if you will forsake that, you're welcome at my table. You're welcome to participate in my face. Uh, in my feast, you can hear from me. You can be healed by me. I will love you. It's a mixed crowd. At the very least, at the very least, we see that Jesus loves all people first. And what follows, even if it's a response from that first initial contact of love, can go in both directions. Now remember, especially if you're a little bit Calvinist in your bent. Jesus is the all-knowing, omniscient God. We would set it up and go, well, since he knows everything and knows who's going to respond to his message, he could just show up and go, I'm not even going to talk to those people because none of them want anything to do with me. You will not find that in the ministry of Jesus. 
His love is not determined by our response or his knowledge of it. His love is determined by his character. He loves all people. In fact, as much as we might grumble about the Pharisees, we also find him eating in their houses. The issue here is one of pursuit. It's one of initiation. Jesus doesn't just set up a house and lower the standard of entry and say, if you want to come and be with me, this is all it takes, and wait. He marches into Jericho and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. He calls Levi and then Levi says, can I invite some friends? He says, yes, but let me be your host. He inserts himself in the lives of those who need him like a doctor on the front lines of a humanitarian crisis doing triage. He goes where the need is. Now, that also helps us to stay away from another pitfall, which is justifying our roster of friendships because it looks like Jesus and just saying, I don't care who I hang out with, I just hang out with everybody. Jesus isn't here as a sinner and as a tax collector. He's here as a doctor. And there's a whole lot more to loving people than just the invitation to follow Jesus, just the offer of forgiveness. And he loves them holistically, even though he always holds that concern to be most important. What did we see last week? Here's a man in physical need, paralyzed. And the first thing Jesus says to him is not be healed, but your sins are forgiven. Jesus has priorities, but his love is holistic. And so if we're going to follow Jesus as a church, if we're going to walk in his footsteps, there are going to be times like Peter, like Ananias, uh, there are going to be times where we go, them? Really? What happens next shows if the gospel has taken root in our hearts or not. You see, Jesus was happy to eat with human beings wherever they were at. Now, any of you who have gotten to know me uh, know that uh, I'm not a very relationally driven person. Even friendship is a relatively new thing for me. Uh, And so I'm a little bit behind the curve in growing in all of these things. While ago, because of this, I had to, as a pastor, start teaching myself a very simple mantra, which was make relationships, then disciples. Because I just was assuming discipleship could be done apart from that. I was assuming evangelism could be done apart from that. And there are many ways where God will graciously work apart from loving relationships, but clearly the definitive core of what it means to follow Christ is relationally oriented. It goes where the needs are. Even in our neighborhood, are there places that where, where you wouldn't set foot? And maybe it's not conscious hatred. It's just apparent difference. Jesus is not afraid of contamination, and that's, I think, the only place where the metaphor might break down for us. When he says that he is the physician and he's come to heal the sick, I can point out to us this morning that sin isn't inherently contagious, okay? Sickness is. There's no getting around that. It's part of what makes uh, a doctor's calling so honorable, especially somebody who's on the front lines of an epidemic, right? But with Jesus, there's no, there's no threat of that. And even for us, uh, although there is, of course, influence in these things, um, for us as Christians, what's inside matters more than outside. If God has truly gifted us with his spirit, remember when the leper falls down before Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches the leper and makes him clean. What happens in the Old Testament? The opposite. Anyone who comes in contact with a leper becomes unclean. Okay? Jesus is purifying, not being tainted. And that's that's how we operate as Christians. We are not scared of the darkness. We are the light. We are not avoiding the corruption. We are the salt, right? John Stott asked very simply, if we're worried about the world or the neighborhood or the family we live in, nobody walks into a dark house and asks, why is it so dark in here? They say, who turned out the light? 
Nobody encounters a, a corrupt piece of meat and says, why is it so rotten? Right? We take that stuff for granted. That's the natural drift of life. He says, who didn't preserve this? Where's the salt? Okay. Now, we need to be clear here this morning. In one sense, it's right and proper to say that there's no prerequisite to enter into a relationship with Jesus. That's one of the unique things about Christianity. You don't have to uphold the five pillars. You don't have to finish your pilgrimage. You don't even have to have digested everything it means to be a Christian. Right? You don't have to be this righteous to ride this ride. You don't have to, uh, you know... Uh, like some sort of MLM set up religiously, convert this many people to justify your salvation. You don't have to do any of that. What God offers in Jesus Christ is a free gift, one that Jesus has earned through his death. Uh, and so we no longer need to provide, and we receive it just by trusting in what Jesus has done. That's all true. But in another way, there is absolutely a prerequisite, and that's the prerequisite of need. In fact, it's what's so amazing about this statement here, because we tend to simplify things, and so there's these grumbling people who label a group sinners, and what we do is we stand up and say, no, they're not sinners. No, they're, they're human. They need to be loved. Jesus is comfortable with the language of sinners. In fact, he points out here that the only ones who can benefit from his ministry are not the righteous, but sinners. Now, let's be a little obvious this morning. Is Jesus saying, look, guys, I'm not hanging out with you guys because you don't need me. We can see, in fact, we can see in Jesus' own words that in some ways the Pharisees are in much more dire consequences than the so-called sinners and tax collectors. Why is it that Levi so swiftly leaves and follows Jesus? Because he's desperate. Because in some sense he has everything but what matters and it's killing him day by day. And he sees something in Jesus that he knows is life and hope abundant. And he takes it as soon as it's offered. That's why uh, the gospel authors say, and the prostitutes and tax collectors heard him gladly. The common people heard him gladly. But the religious leaders, not so much. But Jesus constantly throughout his ministry warns them of the impending and unseen danger that they too have need. Okay? These are the ones who uh, effectively cover up their leprosy with wealthy clothing and say, I'm fine. Look, I'm totally healthy. Everybody wants to be me. But on the inside, they're rotting. You see, if you're going to benefit from the cure, you have to take the diagnosis. And when that comes to socially, it means you have to identify yourself as an outcast, a sinner. In the book of Hebrews, it, is, it encourages us to live on the margins of the outside of acceptable community because Jesus was crucified outside the city. And it says, let us follow him outside the city. Where? To Golgotha, to Calvary to our own deaths, if it be. But the thing is here, that identification for us has to be one of desperation. It's not that if you don't have a particular sense of a need for Jesus this morning, then you do not need him. But you cannot receive what he offers without that. Do you see how this changes the game on how we spend our time with other people? Because if the great determining line that's drawn in the sand that rightly defines where humanity is at, we're all on the outside, excluded from a relationship with God. That's where the wall is. And so anyone who steps into a relationship with God, anyone who becomes part of Jesus' body, the church, anyone who is adopted into God's family is not there on merit or because they were born into it or because they inherit it or because they have good graces or impressive whatever. They are there because Jesus sought them out and at his own cost invited them in. And so, like I said, we've got to watch out here from, from this well-set uh, versus this wall-set 
understanding, we need to see here that it's not just that Jesus is inclusive in some sort of um, secular humanism sense of recognizing that everybody is human, although baseline, it's clearly that. He gives an invitation. The invitation expresses dire need, but he offers it freely to all comers. Here's the prerequisite for being a follower of Jesus. You have to be a sinner. You have to take what he and what God's word says about your life, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all have sinned, that all we like sheep have gone astray, each according to his own way. You have to take the diagnosis. Now, this makes one of the interesting paradoxes of Christianity. Because it means that if you're not a Christian here this morning, you are welcome here Every week you are welcome in our homes. You are welcome to be with us and we have no requirements for you. We just want you to come and to know the Jesus that we love and has saved us and invite you to be saved as well. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're continuing to walk in sin, the Bible calls for exclusion. It calls to separate them on the outside. Isn't that paradoxical? How many other organizations just prove that you're good enough to be in and then you're in? And then all of the hypocrisy and craziness that comes with it. But Christianity is the opposite. It's open to all comers being present with us. We have no demands. You're welcome in our house. But Paul says if somebody is continuing unrepentantly in their sins and calls themselves a brother, meaning they say, yes, I'm a Christian, to not even eat with such a one. Why? It's because when a doctor prescribes a medicine, you are not yet fully healed. You have to take it. And if someone were to show up every day and say, I'm fine, I don't need the medicine anymore, then we would take drastic measures to make sure that they see their need for it. You see, Jesus doesn't save us because we are righteous. But when his salvation is true and it has hold in our lives, it does make us righteous. And so it discerns for us the difference between the real medicine, the balm of Gilead, like it talks about in the Old Testament, that really brings life and healing and a placebo effect. But it doesn't matter where you're at this morning, whether you've known Jesus and are far from him now, whether you're just getting to know Jesus, the invitation stands open. The gate is present. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the lost. And he invites us all in. In fact, I love uh, in the book of Revelation in one of the letters to the churches, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I and my father will come in and we will dine with him. Now, I want to point something out that, that you may not have noticed about that. That is not an evangelistic text. It's not written to non-Christians. It's written to a church that's so forgotten the gospel and so walked away from it, they've locked the doors and left Jesus on the wrong side of the door. But even there, for that church, he's there knocking and pleading and desiring a relationship with his rebellious children. That's the heart of God. That's the character of God. And so no, it's not about exclusion. It's tremendous inclusivity, but in another sense, it's absolutely the most exclusionary doctrinal belief there is because it says none of us are good enough. No one can qualify for this. But do you see how that changes our lives? Why we're freed up to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? why we can walk into the house of those who our neighbors may despise or those who we traditionally are are suspicious of or these types of things and offer freely and fully because none of us deserves to be here. And so in another sense, it is, of course, the most inclusive and outreaching doctrine there is. And if you look at the history of Christianity, you will see it over and over again whether it's Christian missionaries living in the leper colonies of Asia, or it's the first century right after Jesus collecting disposed babies 
from trash heaps and raising them as their own children. The church has always lived in this place because this is who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, the worst way we can read your word is as a form, a fresh form of self-justification, evidence that we have no need of you. When we read the Bible and we say, oh good, everything's okay, I'm already doing all that, Lord, we miss out on its purpose. The purpose that James tells us, which is to be a mirror and to show us what's wrong so that we can go to the fountain and be washed. And so for those who are Christians here, collectively, Lord, we lay our hearts before you. We ask that you would drive out the religiousness, the distinctions that we make between us and others, the deservedness that we slap like a badge on our own hearts and despise those who don't live up. I pray, Lord, that through the reality of the distance that you came looking for us, of the grace and mercy that you've shown us, of the tremendous cost of you bearing our sins upon your shoulders to atone for them, Lord, that it would eradicate all of that and we would become those who seek to love our neighbors as ourself. Even more than that, Lord, those who seek to love our neighbors as you have loved us. And we know, Lord, that that is part of the medicine. That is part of the healing. And so we confess our need for it this morning and we ask that you would do that work in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things this morning in your name, Jesus. Amen.